The following program is for informational purposes only and is not a recommendation to buy or sell Bitcoin or any particular investment or product, nor a recommendation to pursue any particular purchase or investment strategy. The brands, opinions, advertisements, and recommendations expressed by this program are the opinions and recommendations of the individuals creating the show and not the LTB network. Welcome KCAA radio listeners, welcome Dave Ramsey listeners, and welcome everybody listening from anywhere on the earth. I'm Paul Boyer, you're listening to The Mad Money Machine, and I've got a show where I'm set up to really, really embarrass myself, so stay tuned for that, all here on Episode 9. Broadcasting from the Bitcoin bunker, six blocks below. Brandishing the blockchain to fight good versus evil. This is Bitcoin versus the man. This is the battle of the century. This is the mad money machine. Yes, indeed, we're going to lighten things up quite a bit this week. Last week was very heavy when we talked about all the threats to Bitcoin. This week, we're going to lighten things up. We're going to, of course, have a tool of the week. We're going to take a spin at the world's favorite game, Guru Roulette. And I got a couple other great news segments all here on the Mad Money Machine. Bitcoin and Ethereum walk into a bar. Bitcoin orders a beer. Ethereum says, if it is happy hour, then if import beer costs less than or equal to domestic beer, then order one import beer. Otherwise, Bitcoin says, well, go on. Ethereum says, I ran out of fees to process the contract. Bitcoin says, oh, for the love of Satoshi. Bartender, bring my friend a beer and put it on my blockchain. Well, welcome everybody to the Mad Money Machine. This week's episode, we turn away from all the heaviness of the threats we explored last week and look at the lighter side of Bitcoin. In fact, this week's episode is guaranteed to be lighter than even your Bitcoin balance at Mt. Gox. Which brings us to this week's headline, What in Satoshi's name is going on at Mt. Gox? The only thing harder than getting your Bitcoin out of Mt. Gox is getting someone to pronounce Dogecoin correctly. I don't know why that is, because there's clearly a picture of a doge on the front of the coin. Or maybe it's harder to get a doge fanatic to actually use correct grammar for once. And here's some breaking news from the Bitcoin Foundation. John Matonis writes, February 23rd, 2014. Effective immediately, Mt. Gox has submitted their resignation from the board of directors of the Bitcoin Foundation. We are grateful for their early and valuable contributions as a founding member in launching the Bitcoin Foundation. Mt. Gox Company Limited, Japan held one of the three elected industry member seats. Further details, including election procedures, will be forthcoming. Well, I make I think that makes it now two seats that are open for election, the one held by Charlie Shrim and the one held by Mount Gox. Who would you like to see as members of the Bitcoin Foundation Board of Directors? Send it out in a tweet, including at Mad Money Machine. Well, whatever the case, I think we should stop calling it Mount Gox and start calling it Empty Gox like the initials suggest. This past week, we saw the price of a Bitcoin go down below $100 on good old Empty Gox. And to celebrate, I've written a little song. Wish I was an on old empty gox down in the Japanese hills. Ain't no Bitcoin left on empty gox, ain't no investing thrills. Once I had an account on empty gox, half coin and other half cash. Wild as a snake and sneaky as a fox, now it's turned to ash. Empty Gox, you'll always be a Satoshi's grave to me. Good old Empty Gox. Empty Gox is Japanese. Empty Gox is Japanese. Once two strangers went to old Empty Gox looking for a millibit kill. Strangers ain't cashed out from Empty Gox, frickin' they never will. 
Bitcoin won't leave at all from empty gawks, prices too low for that. That's how the fine folks working at empty gawks got their wallets so fat. Empty gawks, you'll always be a Satoshi's grave to me. Good old empty gawks. Empty gawks is Japanese. Empty gawks is Japanese. Yes, I do continue to embarrass myself. You know, I actually have some uh, Bitcoin or millibits left at Mount Gox. I have 6.8 millibits in my account at Mount Gox. And I think I have something like three-tenths of a cent in the cash account there. Uh, Back in October of 2012, when I first bought my Bitcoin, you know, I, I had to go to CVS Pharmacy and dial up the red phone there to Western Union and fill out all these forms and sort of stuff. And my, that's somehow my uh, Bitcoin ended up that I purchased at that time in Mount Gox. And goodness gracious, how fortunate I was to be smart enough to move that money out of Mount Gox over into blockchain, my blockchain wallet, and just leave a tiny little fraction uh, of that in Mount Gox. I guess there was just something about it even at that time that made me feel that Mount Gox was a kind of a risky place to put your money. But I'm wondering, isn't it kind of weird that a millibit trades out there for 10 cents and it trades out the other exchanges for 65 cents? Gosh, it sure seems like that's a great arbitrage opportunity for somebody. Somebody on the inside, maybe at Mount Gox, that can actually buy up those big millibits that people are selling. Uh, just golly, Neds, if you're able to buy them up from the exchange there for 10 cents, and sell them elsewhere for 65 cents, that's making hand, That's making money hand over fist. That's the way you make money, insider trading. So I'm not sure if it's proper to bemoan the folks that work at Mount Gox for the horrible fate that has befallen them, or to be angry at them. Well, speaking of Mount Gox, let's pull something now out of the Mad Money Machine Bitcoin Tool Crib. And the tool this time is something I use every day. It's ZeroBlock for iPhone or Android. There's also a website, ZeroBlock.com. This is a product produced by the good folks at blockchain.info. If you haven't seen it, it's a really nice looking app. It's all black and white, shades of gray. My favorite color, gray. And what you're able to do there with ZeroBlock on your handheld device, I'm just gonna say iPhone. You're able to look at the current trading price on a number of exchanges. Coinbase, Bitstamp, BTCE, BTC China, if you're interested in yen. And uh, used to be they showed Mt. Gox. And used to be that uh, they showed the Mt. Gox price history in a chart form. At the moment, they don't show any charts. There, It says, due to issues at Empty Gox, we've decided to pull Empty Gox charts. We're working on creating new charts, and I can't wait until they do that. But uh, this app is neat the way it works. You just kind of swipe from screen to screen. If you couldn't figure out how to get from place to place in the app, 
Try swiping left on every screen. Try swiping right. Try swiping up. Try swiping down. There's a whole lot of things in there to be seen. You can set um, notifications. You can uh, convert from dollars to Bitcoin. Uh, You can look at some current news in here as well. It's kind of neat. You can get the Reddit feed or the News BTC feed. Keep swiping to the right there, and it gives you a a list of lots of different um, places that you can get news feeds to show in the ZeroBlock app's news feed, including company blogs, Coindesk, Bitcoin Foundation, Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, Reddit, the Genesis Block, Bitcoin Magazine, NewsBTC, Google News, on and on. It's a really cool app, ZeroBlock. And like the best things in life, it's free. Time now for a brand new segment here on the Mad Money Machine. It's the altcoin of the week. This week's altcoin comes in at number four on the mineable coins, crypto coins that are out there. Of course, the number one coin by far is Bitcoin. But coming in at number four a coin that has a market cap of about $66 million. The current price per coin is about one-tenth of a penny, and the total supply of them right now, almost 53 billion of them. I mentioned it earlier, it's Dogecoin. Dogecoin, symbol D-O-G-E, is a lucky coin slash Litecoin derived cryptocurrency that features the Shiba Inu dog from the Doge internet meme in its logo. The coin was introduced less than three months ago on December 8th, 2013, has taken the world by storm. It has a very fast initial coin production schedule compared to other cryptocurrencies. There will be approximately 100 billion coins in circulation by the end of 2014. And thereafter, 5.2 billion coins produced every single year. There aren't a whole lot of places to buy things with your Dogecoin, but it's great as an internet tipping system where people grant Dogecoins to other users for providing interesting or noteworthy content, like uh, Mad Money Machine. People in the Dogecoin community, as well as people in other cryptocurrency communities, use the phrase, to the moon, to describe the overall sentiment of the coin's rising value. At least that was for a while. Well, the mining reward is, like I say, based on Lucky Coin, which gives you a random reward from zero to currently half a million coins. And that happens until the 200,000th block is produced, which will be estimated around mid to late April of this year. Then it goes down by half and half again in another 100,000 blocks and so on. The block time for Dogecoin is one minute and the difficulty retarget time is every four hours. I've been told by some people that Dogecoin is actually one of the more profitable coins to mine. Get your mining gear all set up, mine yourself some Dogecoin, and then trade them for millibits. Well, congratulations, Dogecoin. You're the very first altcoin of the week on the Mad Money Machine. You're listening to Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine. Also in the news this week, our good friend B.L., okay, I'll say his name, Benjamin Lawski, superintendent of the New York Department of Financial Services, held an AMA out at Reddit. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. And I thought I would go through some of his answers. First question was from Bitcoin D3. They asked, one of the key problems with existing AML money transmitter legislation is that it's simply impossible to comply with unless you have a multi-million dollar legal budget. How will you make sure that it's possible for small startups and sole traders are able to comply with the new legislation? And he answers, this came up a lot at our hearings. We face similar problems in our regulation of smaller community banks. 
Dodd-Frank, for example, was designed to address problems created by our largest institutions, but at times has hit these smaller banks, who had little to do with the causes of the financial crisis, disproportionately in terms of compliance costs, etc. We've had some success in getting these regulations amended so they don't crush smaller community banks. Any regulations we issue for virtual currency firms will have to be carefully tailored with this in mind. Thanks for raising this. Question number two came from E. Voorhees. Hmm, I wonder who that might be. Eric Voorhees. Mr. Lawski, thank you for doing this AMA. I respect that. Question. Do you believe, from an ethical, moral perspective, that an individual has a right to financial privacy? Specifically, ought every individual be compelled to reveal their transactions and holdings of wealth to the United States government? Ultimately, it is to this moral question that the Bitcoin debate and all policies surrounding it will come. And Mr. Lalsky replies, I think financial privacy is an important issue. I certainly don't love the fact that when I purchase something online, I quickly receive a bunch of email solicitations, which clearly show that my information has been sold to other companies. Um, Let me continue before I comment. He says, at the same time, there is an important competing value in preventing money laundering, which often requires that those engaging in financial transactions, especially when large, provide some identifying information so that we can make sure we're not permitting things like terrorist financing. The tricky question is whether we can come up with the smart rules that might require personal identifiers for certain transactions at certain entry points into the system while still protecting financial privacy while moving around within that system. We're obviously still in progress on this topic. Well, he, he talked in his answer there, he talked about... Um, the problem being that his privacy is, um, or that he doesn't have privacy when he's buying something from a company online. I think for Bitcoiners, they're not so much worried about privacy, you know, keeping their privacy from companies as they are from keeping it from governments. Mr. Voorhees replied, thank you for the answer. So you're saying that financial privacy ought to be respected unless... A transaction is over a certain amount, perhaps. I hope you remain consistent with this view, which would require tolerance for tumblers, quote, and other means of maintaining financial privacy, so long as the amounts are under your threshold. We may disagree on the proper threshold number, but I could respect and appreciate your consistency, if so. And as I go through the Reddit AMA, it doesn't appear that Mr. Lawski ever replies to a reply. I'll go on to question three. From Sibicas, S-E-B-I-C-A-S, who asks, Most banks lately are closing bank accounts with Bitcoin-related activity, like transfers to Coinbase, etc. Some merchants are afraid that they will lose their bank account if they get involved with Bitcoin, as already happened to some of them. Why do you think banks are doing this? Will your proposed regulation help us address this issue? And Mr. Lawski replies, I can't tell you exactly why particular banks are taking certain actions, but they may have some concerns related to Bitcoin being new, its price volatility, as well as recent criminal cases. I think new, careful regulations, especially related to preventing money laundering, will make banks more comfortable with Bitcoin-related activity over time. Another question from AQV99T asks, Many Bitcoin enthusiasts think that the widespread adoption of some form of cryptocurrency is an inevitability, and that unfriendly governments, such as China and Russia, will ultimately be powerless to stop it. Do you share this view? And Ben Lossky answers, Hard to put the genie back in the bottle. I can't predict the future, but Bitcoin is certainly a new powerful technology that holds a lot of promise for the future if we can mitigate some of the potential negatives like money laundering. And the last question and answer I'll uh, read for you comes from Online Dejan, who asks, Some people contend that the manner of the Charlie Shrimp arrest was a PR stunt 
coordinated by regulators and law enforcement to intimidate Bitcoin entrepreneurs a day ahead of the NYDFS hearings. For instance, rather than pick up Charlie quietly, say at the restaurant he owns in Manhattan, or call him on the phone and ask him to report to the police station, they arrested him in the middle of the airport and perp-walked him out of there. Was the publicity tied to his arrest connected in any way to the hearings a day later? Is NYDFS above such technical maneuvers? <laughs> and Ben Lossky answers, Let me be clear on this. Absolutely not true. Well, I'll have a link to this Reddit if you haven't seen it. He's got some other questions and answers in there. It's kind of long if you're up for a lot of reading. Call the Mad Money Machine voicemail line at 571-366-7121. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Well, now that we are high into tax season, tax preparedness season at least, I was doing some online research about the tax implications of Bitcoin so that I know how to fill all that stuff out. And I came across this article in Time Magazine actually goes back to a couple of years, a couple of years ago. And this is not a Bitcoin article, but a, uh, a credit card article talking about frequent flyer miles. Uh, it's, um, I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. It says, a tax expert we asked says most frequent flyer miles earned by credit card customers aren't taxable. Amy Miller, director of the Tax Institute at H&R Block, says... Points, frequent flyer miles, cash back, and other in-kind promotional benefits are treated as rebates and are not taxable. But according to Citi, there's an exception. That miles that customers get for opening an account are classified as a gift. And according to a Citi's official statement, when a customer receives a gift for opening a bank account, whether cash, a toaster, or airline miles, the value of that gift is generally treated as income and is subject to reporting. Well, going back to the first part of that then, if rebates on a credit card are not taxable, wouldn't it be cool if someone came up with a Bitcoin credit card? A credit card that gives you Bitcoin as a rebate. That would be a really cool way to get into Bitcoin you go to your gas station, you fill up $50 worth of gasoline, you get, what, a fifty or so worth of millibits into your Bitcoin account. Let me know if anyone out there is doing that, would you? If you know of anybody that's got a Bitcoin credit card, you pay in dollars, of course, but you get your reward points, you get your rebate back in Bitcoin, and, according to this article, it would not be taxable. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Matt Miller on Bloomberg gave one of the other co-hosts a, um, a Bitcoin paper wallet? Said, "Here, I've got I've got a gift for you. It's a it's a paper wallet that has some bitcoins associated with it." And the uh, the other host, I forget his name, he says, "Oh, great!" He opens it up <laughs> and he reveals the private key QR code, and the camera zooms right in on it. And it probably didn't take but 60 seconds that someone had already stolen the, the Bitcoin that was uh, associated with that account. Well, that's because these private keys that are on these paper wallets are or weren't encrypted. Well, now with BIP38 encryption, they can be. BIP stands for Bitcoin Improvement Protocol, and 38 is the 38th one. It's a security protocol that allows you to encrypt a Bitcoin private key with a passphrase and create a new QR code then. The only way to decrypt that QR code is to know the passphrase. And it's important to remember, this is a hard and fast rule. If you forget the passphrase, you won't be able to decrypt your own wallet. Well, so if... Matt Miller had given the, the uh, co-host a BIP38 encrypted paper wallet. He could have shown it on camera. And unless someone hacked or cracked the password, they would not have been able to steal the Bitcoins located at that Bitcoin address. 
Well, these encrypted keys are base 58 check encoded characters. It starts with the number six in the uppercase letter P, 6P. The encryption uses AES-256, and key derivation uses S-crypt or script. So now you have two-factor authentication to get at your private key. You have to have the private key, and then you have to know the password to unlock the private key. If you're using paper wallets, it makes really good sense to check into BIP38. Listen to Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine every Tuesday on KCAA Radio, 10.50 a.m. and on letstalkbitcoin.com. Since we're on the subject of BIPs, there's something else in the news this week. BitPay has announced they now support the payment protocol. This is BIP 70 through 73. This could eliminate a lot of human error in making Bitcoin payment. Uh, The way this works is a user clicks on a payment link or scans a QR code, and the wallet software offers two simple choices to the user. Pay or don't pay. The user doesn't have to copy the address and amount into their wallet anymore. This is really great, especially when you're dealing with the differences between Bitcoin and millibit values. I mentioned before the trouble if we actually move to millibit values and you say, you know, pay me 16 millibit and you type in 16 into your wallet and press send, you may have accidentally just sent them 16 Bitcoin instead of 16 millibit. Hopefully the payment protocol will eliminate those kind of errors from happening. And here's what BitPay says on their website in talking about the launch of payment protocol support. They talk about native refund address support. They talk about secure signed payment requests. They talk about user-friendly QR codes. And the last one they talk about is direct payment communication. They say, perhaps the most exciting thing about the payment protocol is that it eliminates the need to use the mesh network for communicating a payment from sender to recipient. The Bitcoin Mesh Network currently serves two purposes, communicating payments from sender to recipient and communicating payments from originator to miners. By communicating payments directly from sender to recipient, the Mesh Network can be used exclusively for communicating payments from originator to miners. The network is then free to propagate or ignore transactions without adversely affecting the communications between sender and recipient. This allows for the emergence of a true market in transaction fees and by reducing the load on the mesh network to just those transactions which are profitable to miners, it improves Bitcoin's scalability. That all sounds pretty cool to me. And I'm, ho- I'm sure they, uh, Bitcoin core developers are hoping that this gets put into widespread use pretty quickly. Well, at the moment, the only wallet software that's able to talk to BitPay using this payment protocol is the Bitcoin QT client and the Bitcoin uh, QT wallet for Android. But I'll keep you posted as we find more and more wallets compatible with the Bitcoin payment protocol. In the news at this hour, CEO David Nelms, who runs the fourth biggest U.S. network after Visa, and that is Discover Financial Services, says he's a bit skeptical about Bitcoin. He says other things pose a lot more potential threats or opportunities than Bitcoin. Also in the news, CEO of Blockbuster says, we're not afraid of Netflix. And the CEO of Tower Records says, we're not afraid of MP3s. Also in the news this day, Empty Gox is now Empty Tweets. On Monday, they deleted all of their Twitter tweets, saying it's due to a flaw in the Twitter protocol. And an article by Chuck Jaffe out at Market Watch says Joseph Borg, state securities administrator in Alabama, says he plans to issue a consumer alert Tuesday, suggesting that if consumers and investors have trouble redeeming bitcoins or cashing out of their accounts, they stop trading or adding to their holdings on their accounts, until issues are resolved. Sounds like the makings of another song for Mad Money Machine. No, no, not up for another song today. Sorry. Not going to do it. 
Well, you know, a couple of shows or so ago, I talked to you about the neat thing about stealth addresses, where you could publicize a Bitcoin address or a sort of a Bitcoin address, and people could um, send millibits to that address, but they wouldn't be able to see who uh, who else sent you uh, millibits to that address. I'm glad I didn't talk about a cool little tool that I found for it called StealthBit. Uh, it was on my list of tools to talk about. I downloaded it and used it, and it was kind of neat. It actually worked. Somebody sent me a tip. I sent them back a tip just to test it, and it turns out there's malware in it. <laughs> so it installs two extensions into your Chrome and Safari browsers that basically snoop on you and report things back to their servers. Uh, they're particularly interested in, of course, passwords to your Bitcoin wallets. So if you have installed StealthBit for Mac, or if you went to download.com or some of the other non-Mac App Store websites and installed the Bitcoin ticker, which I did talk about several shows ago, then that installs the same malware. I'll have instructions in the show notes on how to uninstall the malware that gets installed on your Macintosh. The article is called OSX Coin Thief Manual Identification and Removal Instructions. It's at the securemac.com website, and it was updated on February 12th of 2014. Fortunately, as far as I can tell, I haven't had anything stolen yet. One of the stories this past week that got Bitcoiners all a Twitter was the notion that PayPal CEO James Donahue, or is it Donahoe, uh, actually, he's the, yeah, he's the CEO of eBay. He was on Bloomberg and was asked by Matt Miller about the integration of Bitcoin into PayPal. I roll traction. Let me say, I've been using uh, the mobile platform on eBay for over 10 years. I remember bidding on a bed in Berlin, Germany in 2002 with my mobile phone, and I thought it was so far out that I could do that. Now it's a part of our daily lives. I feel like, at this, uh, by the same token, Digital payments like Bitcoin or something similar are clearly going to rule the way we do Internet commerce in the future. Wouldn't you get a, such a great head start on that if you could spin off PayPal, take the valuation for it now before something like Bitcoin comes along and makes PayPal useless? Well, there's nothing that's holding PayPal back from pursuing digital payments today as part of eBay. In fact, PayPal is pursuing digital payments and is the leading digital payments alternative in many different environments. So it's not a matter of eBay's holding PayPal But for back. now, well, right, until everyone starts using Bitcoin and then there will be no reason to use PayPal. Well, you can use, you can use digital currencies in the PayPal digital wallet. That's, in fact, what PayPal is doing is building a digital wallet that can take multiple types of currency. One of the concerns, John, is that you're not able to attract and retain the best talent right now because people... And she cuts him off right in the middle of the most important thing we could have heard on Bloomberg is the announcement that maybe PayPal is going to integrate Bitcoin into their wallets. And she cuts him off and talks about hiring talent. Well, let's go back and listen exactly what he said one more time. Well, you can use, you can use digital currencies in the PayPal digital wallet. That's, in fact, what PayPal is doing is building a digital wallet that can take multiple types of currency. Well, is that a leak now? Did he just leak information about what PayPal is doing, similar to the way that Overstock CEO Byrne indicated they were going to end, uh, accept Bitcoin in 2014, then he decided he had to go and do it quickly. It's going to be interesting to watch and see if PayPal does, in fact, allow you to put in their wallet digital currencies such as Bitcoin. Let's play a round of the world's favorite game, Guru Roulette. I've replaced the numbers on a roulette wheel with the names of Bitcoin gurus. I'll spin the wheel and roll the marble. And for the selected guru, give you a little background on their Bitcoin philosophy. So here we go. And the winner this time on Mad Machine episode number nine for February 25th is... The Winklevi. Well, the Winklevi are the Winklevoss twins, of course. Born August 21st, 1981. That's 20 years and 17 days after Barack Obama. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, identical twins. They are American rowers and internet entrepreneurs. They competed in the men's pair rowing event at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, where they came in sixth. They're also known for co-founding Harvard Connection, later renamed 
Connect U. In 2004, they sued Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg for $140 million, claiming he stole their Connect U idea to create the popular social networking site. They are now venture capitalists and have led a seed funding round for Bitcoin payment processor BitInstant. In April 2013, the brothers claimed they owned nearly 1% of all Bitcoin in existence at the time. Well, also in 2013, they filed to register a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund called the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust. And this past week, they released the, get ready for the name, Winkdex Bitcoin Price Index. <laughs> uh, I'm not really sure I know anyone that's happy with that name. I guess they are. Nobody else is. The Winkdex. If you go to winkdex.com, you can see this um, index of Bitcoin prices. They use a proprietary formula to average not only the traded price, but the volume and other metrics of the following exchanges, Bitfinex, Bitstamp, BTCE, CambiX, LocalBTC, and Mt. Gox, except they just said, no, nah, we're going to drop Mt. Gox because they don't qualify. So there are five exchanges that they average together, and that gets this price then. This price is necessary for establishing the um, net asset value of their exchange-traded fund that they're hoping to come out with soon. Now, on the old Mad Money Machine, I talked a lot about ETFs and the difference between ETFs and mutual funds. Mutual funds, of course, have a net asset value price that's uh, calculated once per day after the market close, whereas ETFs are traded like stocks on the exchange while the exchange is open, 9.30 to 4 uh, Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. Why should or shouldn't someone perhaps buy this ETF? In a taxable account, I don't think it makes sense. You might as well just buy the Bitcoin. In a IRA, though, it might make sense because you don't have to pay taxes, you know, until the end of the IRA, or if it's a Roth, then you wouldn't pay taxes at all. But you could trade around then this uh, Bitcoin ETF and not suffer the consequences of uh, capital gains taxes or other taxes. The other thing that doesn't make sense about this is you would have to pay something like 2% every year an expense ratio on the fund. It, it's not something that they send you the check for. It actually just comes out of the value of the uh, asset on the exchange. So you never really see it other than your price doesn't go up as fast as owning the actual Bitcoin itself. Theoretically, at the end of the year, the ETF would be 2% less than what the actual Bitcoins themselves would be worth. So over a long period of time, that could make a big difference. Now, if you really need to look at an index of Bitcoin prices, another perhaps better one is to go to coindesk.com price. Now their index, instead of using five exchanges, only uses two, as I understand it. They also dropped Mt. Gox. They don't use um, local Bitcoins. They don't use um, Camp BX. But their chart has a, a little bit more... Uh, interactivity to it. You can use sliders and you can change dates and you can look at a day versus a week versus a month. Just a little bit better uh, graphical display than the Wink Dex. But the Wink Dex is not for you, it's for them. It's, it's to help them calculate their exchange traded funds net asset value. Well, congratulations, Winklevi. You're the gurus on Mad Men Machine Episode 9. You're listening to Paul Boyer's Mad Money Machine. One thing I'd like to do now is go back to the fundamentals of Bitcoin. Like every good athlete, you always practice the fundamentals to get really good at your craft. Same is true for Bitcoin. In this case, I'm going back to the original paper that Satoshi wrote entitled Bitcoin, a Peer-to-Peer -Peer Electronic Cash System. It's only nine pages long. I read the abstract for you a couple of shows ago. Now, this time, I'd like to read the introduction. It's only a couple paragraphs long. In it, he says, Commerce on the Internet has come to rely almost exclusively on financial institutions serving as trusted third parties to process electronic payments. While the system works well enough for most transactions, it still suffers from the inherent weaknesses of the trust-based model. Completely non-reversible transactions are not really possible since financial institutions cannot avoid mediating disputes. And let me just break in here and say what he's talking about there, a non-reversible transaction, 
the opposite, of course, from a reversible transaction where, like credit cards or PayPal, uh, the customer buys something and then calls up the credit card or PayPal saying, hey, uh, this product broke or I didn't get it. Please reverse the charges. And so they, the uh, financial institution goes back to the merchant and gets the money back. In Bitcoin, that's not possible, which the merchant likes because the merchant wants the customer to go directly back to them to resolve the dispute. Well, let me continue reading the introduction here. Uh, He says, The cost of mediation increases transaction costs, limiting the minimum practical transaction size and cutting off the possibility for small, casual transactions. And there's a broader cost in the loss of ability to make non-reversible payments for non-reversible services. With the possibility of reversal, the need for trust spreads. Merchants must be wary of their customers, hassling them for more information than they would otherwise need. A certain percentage of fraud is accepted as unavoidable. These costs and payment uncertainties can be avoided in person by using physical currency, but no mechanism exists to make payments over a communications channel without a trusted third party. What is needed is an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust, allowing any two willing parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Transactions that are computationally impractical to reverse would protect sellers from fraud, and routine escrow mechanisms could easily be implemented to protect buyers. In this paper, we propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer distributed timestamp server to generate computational proof of the chronological order of transactions. The system is secure as long as honest nodes collectively control more CPU power than any cooperating group of attacker nodes. And that's the end of the introduction. It's all about keeping the integrity of this ledger, this blockchain. You can't go back and change old nodes in the blockchain because they're all linked together cryptographically. And with all the miners out there working continuously to uh, ensure the integrity of the blockchain, it would be impossible for someone to come along and go back and change items in the blockchain and get them approved by everyone that's uh, working on the blockchain. And what Satoshi is really talking about here is a cash-like system that can operate over the internet where you don't need someone, a trusted third party in the middle, to mediate transactions. The seller can trust the buyer because transactions are non-reversible. It's really like me sending you cash over the internet. You get the cash, I get the product, and I can't go back to some credit card company or PayPal and say, I didn't get my product, give me the cash back. And so the theory is that should free up a lot of the transaction costs that you would pay for having that trusted service in the middle. Until this paper, there was no way to do this. That's why we're all excited about the possibilities of Bitcoin. And like Apostle Andreas always says, you can't uninvent it. Let's play another game now, and that is Bitcoin Merchant of the Week. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go out to the website called spendbitcoins.com places. And I'm going to choose two random numbers. The first is the page between 1 and 195, and the second one is the item on the page between 1 and 10. So here we go. The first random number is... 110. And the second number now between 1 and 10 is 5. So page 110, number 5. And on page 110, item number 5 is the Little Olive Tree B&B. It's a family-owned B&B in Paris, France. Pay with bitcoins for a lower price. Out at hostelworld.com, not hostel as in hostility. Hostel is in a place to stay. They have a 64% rating out of nine total reviews. They offer a private room in our family apartments for one or two persons. Residence is located in a park, very calm with green, 
ideal after a busy day in Paris. Noiseless night, guaranteed, and swimming pool next to the residence. The latest review added this website was from an anonymous female from England, aged 34 to 40, it says. And she says, No cleaning was done whatsoever. Did not feel welcome at all. Staff quite rude, actually. Bad experience altogether. <laughs> well, uh, well, I would encourage you to check out the Little Olive Tree B&B. You can pay with Bitcoin if you don't mind it maybe not being so clean. That's our Bitcoin Merchant of the Week. Next up here on the Mad Money Machine, I have a little clip I pulled from RT's show called Boom Bust with host Aaron Aid. She had a little monologue and went on for about three minutes talking about money laundering. And since on the last episode of the Mad Money Machine, I made such a big deal about how money laundering is the biggest threat that they'll use against Bitcoin, uh, I thought it's interesting to see what she had to say about money laundering. Let's listen. Our lead story today, money laundering. More specifically, money laundering in the age of Bitcoin. Now, many would argue that hiding or failing to report where money comes from is in and of itself a victimless crime. It certainly does seem that way, doesn't it? Yes, 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 yes. HSBC helped to fund tens of thousands of murders. Wait, what did she just say? HSBC helped to fund tens of thousands of murders. Well, the money laundering might be victimless, but that is certainly not victimless. And launder money for Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah, which is unanimously considered a bad thing. No one is debating that, especially not me. I guess Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda would think it's not a bad thing, so maybe not quite unanimous. However, when the Hong Kong-Shanghai Banking Corporation was found guilty in 2012 of laundering billions, not millions, billions for these terrorist organizations, no one spent time in jail. In fact, no arrests were, were even made. Too big to jail, right? What ended up happening was that HSBC was paid in fines. That's all they had to do. They had to pay a fine of $1.9 billion, and the bank managed to still turn a profit of $13.5 billion that year alone. So they turned out okay. Uh, let's do the math on that now. $1.9 billion in fines, $13.5 billion in money coming in. Yeah, that's a pretty good deal. Now... What incentive do they have to stop doing the misdeeds? Yet Charlie Schrem, CEO of BitInstant, was arrested by federal authorities last week for allegedly laundering more than $1 million worth of Bitcoin. So the fine HSBC paid was 2,000 times larger than what they accused Charlie Schrem of laundering. They must have laundered a lot of money. And today, he's sitting in jail. True story. I don't think that's quite accurate, is it? I mean, I think he's under house arrest. I saw an interview on YouTube uh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Tucker did with him, a video interview, and he was in his bedroom. So why the vast discrepancies when it comes to those accused of money laundering? To put it simply, money. Now, the DOJ pretty much said, listen, HSBC, it's just too big to jail. That's what I just said. And during the HSBC settlement announcement, attorney, assistant attorney general, rather, Lanny Brewer, he said this. Now, quote, had the U.S. authorities decided to press criminal charges, HSBC would almost certainly have lost its banking license in the U.S. and the entire banking system would have been destabilized. Yeah, I think the entire banking system already is destabilized. I think it's some of the friends... Uh, in high places who have w would have been destabilized. However, destabilizing the fastest growing unregulated cryptocurrency in the world. Now that sounded like a good plan for the Justice Department. They were all game for that. Now, Kathy Reasonwitz. Now, this is the Kathy that I met once at the uh, D.C. Bitcoin meetup. I, I think she pronounces it Reasonwitz. I'm not sure. She has the website Sex in the State. Now, Kathy Reasonwitz recently published an article on this very subject in which she wrote, quote, Money laundering is simply the process of concealing sources of money. While the standard image of money laundering involves murders, Mexican narco gangs, and Al-Qaeda, in reality, there are many reasons that normal people would want to keep their transactions anonymous. Yes, and I would say the first and foremost is, it's none of your business. If your mom pays you in cash to mow the lawn and you don't declare that money, you are indeed concealing the source of that money and laundering it. So let's outlaw cash. But the real question here is this. What are the moral and practical foundations of a law where those who violate it least are punished hardest? Is that justice? Money laundering may be a bad thing, 
But is letting a bigger, more violent offender walk the solution? I do not think so. I mean, seriously, you don't have to close down HSBC. Just arrest somebody. Let's take a minute, as we always do, to look at the Bitcoin market. The 24-hour price from blockchain.info is 57 cents per millibit. The total number of millibits in circulation is 12.4 billion. That works out to be a market capitalization of about $7 billion. The total reward to miners per block works out to be $14,232. The transaction fees per block, $72. Now the 24-hour miner revenue from blockchain.info, this is the total value of all Bitcoins mined in the last 24 hours. $2.588 million worth of Bitcoins were mined into existence within the last 24 hours. Hmm, seems like inflation to me. The number of transactions per day, 65,335. And that works out to be an average number of transactions per block of about 353. That's your Madman Machine Market Minute. Let me point out two particularly good shows I listened to this past week, both of them on the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network. The first happened to be Ed and Ethan's Bitcoin Report, number three, where they talk to Ethereum founder Charles Hoskinson. It's always fun listening to what's coming up about Ethereum. And the second great show was from the actual Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast, episode number 86, entitled Virtual Worlds, Real Money. Uh, Adam interviewed Richard Garriott, a video game developer and entrepreneur. I had never heard of Richard Garriott before. I'm not involved in the video games. And after listening to this show, I'm sad that I haven't been because it's a it's a really interesting economy, uh, talking about the money used in the games and then bringing that to the real-world scenarios. Really fascinating. Adam talked about how the Let's Talk Bitcoin coin might work. And I might just have to add Richard Garriott's name to the Guru Roulette Wheel and hope he comes up soon. Well, I'm Paul Boyer saying it takes money to make money and it takes millibits to make a Mad Money Machine. Thanks so much for joining me this week on the Mad Money Machine. I'll see you next Tuesday, 2 p.m. on KCAA Radio 1050 AM in beautiful Southern California. And, of course, on the internet at madmoneymachine.com or letstalkbitcoin.com. In the meantime, buy some Bitcoin, spend some Bitcoin, donate some Bitcoin, and then replenish your Bitcoin. If you found anything at all that you like about this show, would you tweet it? And include at madmoneymachine in the tweet to help others find the show. If we reach out to more people and help them learn about Bitcoin, well, the value of your Bitcoin goes up, right? Feel free to call me at the Madman Machine voicemail line, 571-366-7121. Ask a question, leave a comment, or just talk on and on endlessly for whatever reason. Email me, bitcoin at madmanmachine.com. I'm available at Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit with the user handle madmoneymachine. Thank you so very much. I'll see you next Tuesday. And between now and next Tuesday, go check out some of the other great Let's Talk Bitcoin Network shows, including, of course, Let's Talk Bitcoin itself, Stephanie Murphy's Sex and Science Hour, The Ed and Ethan Show, and Bitcoins and Gravy. You can catch a list of showtimes at kcaaradio.com, or you can go out to letstalkbitcoin.com and get those shows and even more. And the Mad Money Machine, of course, is available at those places as well as madmoneymachine.com. See you next Tuesday.